Good morning. Welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. My name is Frank Wong. I'm the assistant pastor here. If you're new to the church or you're just checking us out online, I'd encourage you to drop us an email uh, so that we can get to know you and pray for you and with you. This week, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50. If you would turn there in your Bibles with me, you can follow along. I'll be reading the passage as we go along to save time. But first, uh, let's start our time in God's Word with prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we can be together this morning, uh, worshiping and hearing from your Word. We pray that you would speak loudly through uh, this sermon, that we would hear from you. And Lord, uh, the passage that we have this morning calls us to examine our lives for sin and to be ruthless in dealing with it. But to be honest, uh, the sins that these verses point out don't often feel like sins to us, and yet they are. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see uh, our own sinfulness clearly, that you would remind us of the implications of your gospel that we put our hope in. And Lord, we ask that that gospel would transform who we are and change us. Would your word reveal to us today uh, that deep-seated sinfulness that is within us and give us the strength to see it? and uh, the grace that you promised to address that particular sinfulness. Lord, make us more like you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, uh, I want to talk about a realization that I came to pretty early on in my, uh, my marriage to my wife, Sarah. And it actually has to deal with food. Um, now, you've got to understand, I can eat Chinese food uh, for every meal, for every day and be completely happy. It's my comfort food since that's what I grew up on and I really actually never get sick of it. And since I do most of the cooking in our family, uh, early on I happily made Chinese food every single night um, over and over and over again. And it just didn't even cross my mind to make anything else. And Hopefully you see the problem already, right? Uh, when Sarah and I got married, I wasn't supposed to simply live uh, as I had always lived, eating a ton of Chinese food. Rather, I was supposed to lay down my life for my wife and serve her as best as I could, which in this case means making her, own, uh, making her comfort food, not mine. And the problem was that I was living like old single Frank and not the new married Frank. And they were sort of like dueling identities, but I was not living according to who I actually was. And so while I should have been thinking about and considering the needs and desires of my wife, I just simply wasn't. I was acting selfishly instead. At my core, I wanted to eat Chinese food, and so I made Chinese food. And I was so wrapped up in what I wanted that it didn't even occur to me to think any differently. And it took me quite some time to realize what I was doing. And thank goodness, Sarah is an incredibly loving, patient, and supportive wife. And I think that that dynamic, living with sort of two identities and living not according to who we actually are, uh, is a great illustration of our spiritual lives. There are so many times where we're living in the way of our old sinful selves rather than our new redeemed in Christ selves. And we don't even realize that. Uh, the old sinful self is so comfortable, so natural, so normal. It's like breathing, and we don't even think about it. And then Christ comes in to reveal the broken sinfulness that we've been living in and to call us into new life. And the disciples were no different. 
right? So throughout our passage this morning, the disciples consistently show us that while they were following Jesus and completely committed to Jesus, they are still living out of their old self-centered sinful identities. And as we work through our passage, hopefully we'll see how Jesus takes that old way of doing things and transforms it through the, uh, the gospel into godly living. And so if, we have an ES, if you have an ESV Bible, we'll be sort of going by subheadings, dividing our time by subheadings. So let's dive right into the first subheading. Jesus again foretells death and resurrection. For a bit of context, um, Jesus had just sort of revealed his glory on the mountaintop at the beginning of chapter 9. And it's important to note that the transfiguration is a turning point in the whole book of Mark. After he had come down from the mountain, Jesus is no longer just sort of doing his ministry, sort of teaching here and there. Jesus is, in fact, setting his path toward Jerusalem, the Passion Week, and the cross. And so the march toward the cross has really begun. It's the road, and it's on the road to Jerusalem and that cross that we come to verses 30 to 32. And so let's, let's read it now. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he didn't want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And so it, at this point, Jesus is focused on teaching the disciples. And that sort of makes sense because the disciples had proven to be remarkably dense throughout Jesus's ministry. They just didn't seem to get it. They were really slow learners. And so Jesus knew that his time with them was running out. And so he was very sort of focused on getting them uh, ready for when he was gone. And so where does Jesus start his sort of final set of teaching on the way to Jerusalem and the cross? Well, he reaches back to Mark chapter 8 and the teaching that he would be delivered into the hands of men to be killed and then rise again on the third day. For Christians, that's pretty basic. Sounds good. But we miss a lot if we simply receive it as sort of basic Christian teaching that we already know. This teaching was most certainly not basic to the disciples. And our text spells that out, right? Verse 32 says, But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And I think it's going to be helpful for us to sort of pause and dig in here and to try to put ourselves in the the disciples' shoes. Because when we Christians think of a Savior, we tend to think of Jesus on the cross naturally, right? But when we usually think of Saviors and other contexts, it's almost always a powerful deliverer who comes in total victory and bathed in glory, not humiliation on a cross. And so it's understandable that the disciples are confused and that they don't get it back in chapter 8, and they still don't get it here in chapter 9. And after all, like in any other context, how can you be a savior if you get killed, right? It just doesn't make any sense, usually. But the fact that they don't get it isn't really sort of sinful and that and I don't really want to sort of focus on that this morning. I want to focus on why they don't ask for clarification. You see, the teaching here was very, very important. It's what Jesus starts with um, and he's repeated it now twice. But the text says that they were afraid to ask. And those, those few words are really important. Because they give us a window into sort of 
the priorities of the disciples and what they're thinking. And so what it really means when they're afraid to ask is that the disciples had decided that Jesus's teaching wasn't worth the risk of looking bad. You know, they didn't want to be called out for being dense or getting chewed out. And that risk outweighed their desire for understanding. And so that right there is how they're living in accord, uh, in accordance with their old selves, how they're living not out of a new redeemed identity, knowing that Jesus loves them, but out of a fearful, oh, I got to look out for myself identity. And so they don't, they obviously don't trust Jesus in the sort of the moment, right? But the gospel sort of turns this on its head, right? It, it, it removes all of our fear. And why? It's, you know, what they're missing is that Jesus is headed to the cross for them. That Jesus dying and being killed is specifically for them. Jesus' death wasn't just going to be an atonement for sin, which they don't see either, but it was going to be the definitive declaration of God's love for them and for you and for me. And so God the Father and Jesus are saying, this is how much I love you. I'm willing to die to give everything up for you. Don't be afraid because this is how far I am willing to go to make sure that you are mine and that you are safe. And so you know, the gospel removes the fear of asking. Being with Jesus removes the fear of asking. We don't, we won't be chewed out by God because Jesus has already paid for our sins. He's not up there thinking, oh, how could you do that again? No, Jesus tells us that we are to come to him in our sin, not when we get our sin sort of taken care of, but in our sin, we are to come to him for grace. We are to come to the Father knowing that the judgment has already been taken and confident that we will receive his grace and help. And the, the disciples know that Jesus loves them, but they're still fearful and they're still making decisions out of that old self. But the gospel changes all of that. And unfortunately, the disciples didn't con continue to sort of ponder Jesus's teachings or discuss it amongst themselves to try to come to comprehension. Instead, they get into an argument over which of them is the greatest. So let's read the next section, verses 33 to 37. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued, about, uh, argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Well, that's a little embarrassing for the disciples, right? They compounded their sinful decision to place looking good over understanding by arguing, which, uh, arguing about which one of them was the best disciple. And you can sort of imagine the arguments, right? Peter might have said, I'm the greatest because I got to see Jesus transfigured. Clearly, I'm closer to the Lord than you because he didn't pick you to go up with him on the mountainside. And then anyone that was like sort of left over uh, down at the bottom of the mountain said, might say, well, while you were up there doing nothing, just sort of sitting there, I was down here doing the Lord's work, his ministry, trying to cast out that demon. 
What did you do for the Lord? And then John probably chimes in and says, well, oh yeah? Well, you're both wrong because I'm the disciple that Jesus loved and that ends the discussion. And on and on and on and around and around and around it goes. And what's at the heart of this argument? It's self-seeking glory. And this sinfulness was just a little bit more obvious than the last. I mean, even the disciples realized that their little debate probably wasn't good, uh, which resulted in that embarrassed silence that met uh, Jesus's question, right? They, even they realized that they were being a little selfish and self-centered and sinful. But before we sort of throw our judgment upon the disciples, I'd like to point out that we do this all the time too, right? In fact, throwing our judgment upon the disciples demonstrates that we act just like they do. That flash of, oh, I'm better than you, right? Oh, those disciples, they don't get it. I know better. That demonstrates that we act just like they do. Because what are we doing when we judge the disciples? We're comparing ourselves to them. And when we compare ourselves to them, what are we saying? We're saying, I'm greater than you. You're not the greatest. I am. And we don't just do this when we sort of study scripture. We do this with each other as well. Really, no part of life is off limits. We play the comparison game in everything, right? And so do you see and feel how we're no different, how we constantly try to figure out what the pecking order is, and we're constantly consumed with the idea of who is the greatest? And so how does Jesus respond to this? Well, Jesus took a formal teaching posture by sitting down and arraying the disciples at his feet. And when he was ready, he said something really radical. He read with me verse 35. If anyone would be last, he, uh, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Well, how does that work? How can you be number one and the best if you're dead last? It goes back to Jesus's teaching that they don't get, remember. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem in order to take on the most humiliating death and to serve as our atonement. He was and is the living fulfillment of this verse. And Philippians 2 tells us that though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled, himself by um, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so what we need to see is the differences in heart. Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped and humbled himself to the point of death. He was the ultimate servant. And so why is that glorious? Why is it glorious to be last, to be the servant? It's because he sought to only do the Father's will. He was the ultimate fulfillment of the purpose of man, the chief end of man, which is, as we know from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify not myself, but God, and to enjoy him forever. And because of his service and obedience, the Father exalted him and gave him all glory and all honor. And so seeking your own honor is to grasp at being like God. It's that original sin that I want to be like God, to have all of that glory for myself. 
And that's the ultimate rebellion, right? And rebellion isn't glorious. It's ugly, in fact, because it goes against everything that we've been made for. And so the disciples ought to seek glory, but they ought to seek not their own glory, but God's glory. And so really, when they sort of fight over their own earthly glory, they're looking in all the wrong places for glory. And so for us, how does the gospel enable us to move from seeking our own glory to seeking God's? How do we go from sort of arguing with each other about who's the greatest to serving uh, God? It starts with realizing that in Christ, we already have all glory. Remember, we've been united to Christ. What's mine is his and what is his is mine. And that means that I have Jesus's glory. That glory that we just spoke about, the name uh, that he has been highly exalted above all other name, that in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That glory is ours in Christ. And so the gospel not only makes us new, but it gives us far more glory than we could possibly ever imagine or even want. That new, and it also gives us a sort of newfound security because when we're not looking to sort of satisfy our own desires, we are freed up and secure knowing that we will never lose that glory. And so that security gives us a newfound perspective too. We don't see people as obstacles to climb over in pursuit of glory. We don't see people as sort of disposable uh, assets to use for building glory. Rather, we are enabled to see everybody as Christ does, in love and in service and in, in like loving them, right? And this is what Jesus was illustrating in verses 36 to 37, when he brings that child into their midst. So not only were children pretty low in the social pecking order in that day and age, so they wouldn't have really been useful for glory building, which sort of underscores this idea that you, you just are not to be about glory building. But Jesus is also calling to mind the way that we receive children. When we take, when we sort of welcome children, we aren't thinking in terms of glory or competition when we just sort of welcome a child. We just do it in a simple warmth and affection, loving them for who they are. And that's how we ought to be receiving everyone, whether they're our superiors or our inferiors, just a simple affection and warmth. And so let's make this specific. What does this mean for us at Potomac Hills in Leesburg and in Loudoun County? The, the big question, I think, is where do we fail to receive others? Where do we refuse to receive others? The classic example in the church is the lack of volunteers with the youth group, right? Not necessarily with our youth group, but just across the church. There are usually a whole host of excuses when it comes to serving with teenagers, uh, but most of them get tossed out when we consider Christ's words here. I mean, he literally picks up a kid and says, hey, when you receive this kid, you receive me. And the language of receive points not only to a warm welcome, you know, a, a warm handshake but, and a hug, uh, it, but it also points to care. Jesus is literally calling us to care for children, for our covenant children, of whom our teens are covenant children, right? But the concept sort of expands to encompass everyone. Are you willing and ready to serve anyone in the church? Are you actually putting that into action? Are there sections of the church or the community at large that you're wary of serving? 
And think about how those feelings of wariness or reluctance point to a deep-seated selfishness that is sinful. And I don't think I'm any better, right? I'm right there with you. This has been really convicting this week for me as well. Not wanting to receive people shows that I'm really all about me and not about you. And so where do we see that we're about ourselves and not about others? And as we step into the next section, let's look for that selfishness as we've seen in the first section and in this section as well. Um, I think that we'll find that selfishness isn't only found sort of on an individual level, but on a corporate one too. So starting in verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon uh, be able... Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Did you catch that selfishness? The the commentator Donald English notes that verse 38 reveals a sort of ownership attitude to Jesus. That's sort of John's... Uh, John's statement. He was theirs. Jesus was the disciples, right? That they sort of owned him. Ministry in Jesus's name was their ministry exclusively. And so the disciples didn't try to stop this exorcist because he was damaging the name of Jesus. No, the end of verse 38 makes it quite clear that protecting the name of Jesus isn't the motivating reason why the disciples want to shut this guy down. The disciples want to shut this guy down because he wasn't following them. Essentially, he's not one of their group. And so their issues are really all about them and their exclusivity. That they basically say, this is my ministry. And you're not allowed to do anything with my ministry unless I say so. And sure, there is certainly a place for vetting folks in ministry, right? They just met this guy. And there's certainly a place for making sure that the name of Jesus is not stained by false teachers and ministers. But this is not one of those times. This is really just simple jealousy. You see, John was asking, in a sense, who should we be receiving? Who is on our side, right? In, ex- in sort of response to Jesus's words from the last section. And I imagine that he's expecting Jesus to sort of commend him for stopping unauthorized, unvetted, potentially harmful ministry in his name. But Jesus doesn't do that. And what's the key to Jesus's response? What's the sort of defining characteristic of Jesus's response? It's, is he mine? Is it's being in being in him that matters, right? Being in Jesus that matters. Whom should we consider on our side? Well, everyone who belongs to Jesus. And so this exorcist might not have had the best theology. We don't know. I'm sure the exorcists and disciples would have had no problems finding differences between them. 
and yet they both belong to Christ. Foundationally speaking, their unity is stronger than, than their differences. Their union is stronger than their differences. And so the implication of the gospel is one of unity. We are united in Christ to all, to all those who are also united to Christ. And so if we fast forward to 2020, what does this mean for us? It means that maybe we should take our unity in Christ with other believers just a little bit more seriously. Sure, we can't stand with those, uh, we, can't, we absolutely can't stand with those that differ over essential doctrines, right? The very core, the fundamental things that we, we believe to make us Christian. But there are so many divisions and arguments and sort of uh, breakdowns in relationship over non-essential doctrines. Right, so many of them aren't over uh, over essential doctrines, and so oftentimes it ends up being something like we Presbyterians looking down our noses at our Baptist brothers for their like weird polity, or are we rejoicing over the ministry success of our brothers serving in non-denominational Bible churches that might be theologically a little bit more lax, so to speak, or are we sort of taking a, a sort of haughty elitist view of our circle of believers and our um, our doctrines, our beliefs, and saying, essentially, we have a corner on the truth. Well, we do have a corner on the truth in Christ, but we probably get it wrong some places. And maybe it's not doctrinal differences that cause divisions for you. Maybe it's political ideology or the, any other number of issues, right? Do, does political ideology or somebody's stance on another issue divide you from your brother and sister in Christ? Right? Christ calls us to remember that there is a unity that enables us to love one another in spite of our differences. And in this particularly polarized time in our history, I think that our union in Christ to one another ought to shine forth. Because when we are able to love one another in Christ despite, of our, despite our differences, I think that gives God a lot of glory because we don't really see a lot of that these days. And as we prepare to wrap up by diving into the last section, I'm mindful that some of what I just said is tough to hear. It might have hit you pretty hard. And that's intentional, actually. You see, this last section tells us that we need to take sin seriously. We need to take the things that divide us um, seriously, that we sort of have a view of our sinfulness, our selfishness, and that we take it seriously and then we are ruthless with it, right? Because the sinfulness that we've seen in these previous sections often goes unnoticed. And that's a big problem for us because those are culturally acceptable sins and we just sort of go by them. But sin is a terrible thing. And so let's read verses 50, uh, 42 to 50 and sort of consider what Jesus has to say about sin. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone was hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. 
salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And Jesus wraps up teaching here by emphasizing the radical nature of discipleship that he has called us to in verses 30 to 41. The sins that were revealed to disciples were not only dangerous to them to continue living in, but also dangerous to those that were looking to them for instruction, for parenting, and for example. A terrible, a terrible fate awaits those who, leads, who lead others astray, especially young Christians, both age-wise and spiritual maturity-wise. And so we need to be careful about sin. And so the graphic language makes this point very clear painfully clear, in fact. Sin is a big deal. Sin leads to hell, and hell is far worse than you or I could possibly think. It's worth, to, it's worth it to do just about anything to avoid hell, right? If we think about hell, I'm going to do just about anything to avoid it. And so it is worth it to do just about anything to avoid sin as well, because sin takes us to hell. And so th you th maybe think, Covering off your foot or hand is kind of overkill. Well, to avoid sin, maybe not really. And sure, the language of self-mutilation isn't a call to literally cut off your hand or foot. Please don't do that. But it certainly emphasizes the ruthless sacrifices that we should make to put to death sin. Are we willing to sort of bear the inconveniences to be righteous? Are we willing to sort of do what it takes to avoid sin, to remove temptation. And so, for instance, it can be terribly inconvenient and uh, boring to have your smartphone charging in your living room instead of your bedroom. But if your, your smartphone is a gateway to sin, that inconvenience of not being able to read on your, kin on your Kindle app or to surf the internet or to like get that latest email or to play that latest game, that inconvenience is well worth the removal of temptation because sin is terrible. And so as Christians, we sometimes are a little bit glib about sin. Jesus has paid it all uh, anyway, so what's the big deal? But that completely misses the severity of sin. Nothing less than the death of our Savior can pay for the sin that we think is no big deal. Nothing less than the death of our Savior can pay for that sin that we keep on committing secretly. And nothing less than the death of our Savior can pay for those culturally acceptable sins that we have no problem committing. Brothers and sisters, those culturally acceptable sins that we commit without even thinking about are the sins that you and I are called to put to death, we, that we're called to take seriously. It will involve sacrifice, inconvenience, and pain. But we will do it because we love the one who took the punishment that we deserve for those sins. Because we love righteousness in Christ more than we love whatever we're giving up to avoid sin. And so to wrap up this morning, I want to look at verse 50. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Salt here works as a preservative. And in this context, salt can be nothing less than our allegiance to Jesus and the gospel. And so what is, our what is to be our defining characteristic? What is to be our saltiness, right? Not distinctions of status, 
not distinctions of worth, not distinctions of whether or not you're part of my group. Rather, our defining characteristic is an all-encompassing allegiance to Christ and his gospel in every facet of life. And so the fear that we saw in verse 32, the arguments between the disciples in verse 34, and the divisions between ministers in Jesus' name in verse 38 are all resolved when people recognize in each other a common commitment to Jesus, the gospel, and to the servant's vocation. When that happens, peace is restored because we care more about Jesus than we care about ourselves. And so, how salty are we? How strong is our allegiance to Jesus? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are not as salty as we ought to be. We're not as committed to righteousness and to you as we ought to be. Help us in our unbelief and our sinfulness. Sanctify us by revealing our sin to us and drawing us to the cross. Would we be transformed by the power of your gospel, that we may see your glory and peace. Change us, we pray. Amen. We'll see you next week.